Being a commissioned people, being a commissioned church is a heavy load. Well, let me relate it today. Dads, uh, grandpas, being a discipling dad is a heavy duty commission. That's no light thing. And the truth of the matter is, is some days it is sweet, isn't it? And then other days, it is really hard. In fact, coming out of our text today, I'm going to use the word, it kind of has a sense of bitter in it, a little bit here and there. It's hard. Being a church that is all about the sweetness of the gospel and yet the whole of the gospel includes the reality of sweetness, but yet some bitterness of things, as we'll see in our text today. And um, in the hard work of being a dad, in the hard work of being a church committed to God's word, every so often you just need kind of a real dose of encouragement, just like John. And uh, we're going to do that today. It's time for a dose of encouragement And we're going to see it in two chapters. So would you grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to start there. Now, if you're visiting with us, if you're here just to kind of be a part of of one of the kids uh, and and what's going on with the parents here, we're so glad you're here. We want to let you know we are doing a very light, fluffy study through the book of Revelation. (laughs) We are going at it full out and it's heavy. Uh, We're big about the Bible around here, so if you don't have a Bible, look on someone or grab one from the seat behind you there, turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be there here in just a minute. What I want to do is I kind of want to start out. I realize it's summer, people are gone a lot on vacation and in and out, and one of the things I'm continuing to try and bring to the front of us as we go each week into what we're studying is, uh, is what I'm trying to do here. Now, you can see on the screen, there's our tour bus here. And last Sunday, I walked into my office and uh, like God put this shirt on my desk or somebody did. I don't know who it was, but thank you uh, um, for it. It's like road tour, VW van, yeah, we are the cool church doing this tour. And uh, so what we're doing is we are taking a tour, we're kind of talking through the land of Revelation, through the book of Revelation. And I, what I want to do is I want to put up uh, this picture here. Let's bring up this picture of uh, what is the pieces, all the pieces of an airplane kit. Now, I grew up in a home where my dad actually built an airplane in our uh, garage. So this, I'm like home here right now. But I'm bringing up this picture up here for this reason. Because two things. Number one, let's go to the next slide here. We'll bring this up. And you can see here that uh, in this, uh, eschatology. Eschatology is the end times, what the Bible says about what God's future plans are. And in this picture here, I want to have it represent that in order to really know what God has said on the whole about what's taking place, you have to know from a number of uh, books of the Bible what's going on, like Daniel, like Ezekiel, like Joel, like Revelation, like the Olivet Discourse, and, and there's others. I'm just kind of putting it as part of it there. So what you need to do is if you're going to take a look and put the whole plane together and fly that thing, all of those are a part of bringing that together to take flight. 
Now, what we're doing is with the book of Revelation, I want for you to know here that we're in the center part. We, the second thing here, let's, let's move to the next slide. We've got the fuselage here. The, that's the thing that you sit in. That's kind of like the main uh, compartment of an airplane. We're not doing, we're not putting the whole plane together. We're just keying in on one book that has a lot to say about God's plans in the future. Now, that's what we're doing is we're just keying in on the fuselage, if you will, book of Revelation. But with this, I want for you to know that what I'm doing right now, and by the way, I'm doing this strategically on purpose, not to play with you, but to bring you along to help you in your own study of God's word. What I'm doing as we're moving through is, is I am not doing a how to build the fuselage class. I'm laying out the pieces of it. The building is going to be coming a little bit later. Okay, so what we've been doing is we've been laying pieces out of this so we kind of see the whole thing and then another time here in the future, in the months to come, I'm gonna spend a couple times bringing this together at least as I see some of this coming together. So I'm trying to help you see the pieces of it and in fact, let me kind of quickly do that here, do a little uh, what are the pieces so far. Well, let's uh, follow along with what I did last Sunday as I kind of had post-it notes uh, up here to help us see the pieces. All right, here's the pieces. Revelation chapter one. John, the apostle John, uh, sees the resurrected, magnified, glorified Jesus Christ. This is the ascended Christ. This is not just the incarnate Christ, the hippie-sandaled uh, teacher dude kind of thing, but, but, it's that, but this is the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ in his full glory. John sees him. And then in chapter one, John is told now that he is going to be seeing more things and he's to write what he sees and he hears down. He's to write it down and then send it to seven local churches, which by the way is also to be uh, read by others beyond that like us. So that was chapter one. Chapters two and three is John, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus actually having some things to say to seven local churches. And so he says those things have direct application to them, but they also have application for us today. Then we move into John, or Revelation chapter four and five. We are in the throne room of heaven. Friends, chapter four and five is absolutely central absolutely foundational to the entire book of Revelation. If you do not center yourselves on chapters four and five, the rest of it just kind of becomes like all over the place. But you have to center this in the throne room. And in the throne room, uh, chapter four, we find the father sitting on the throne in all his glory. We see the, the emerald rainbow and, and the light and thunder shooting out. And, and we see the four living ones around the throne. And then the 24 presbyteros around them, giving glory and majesty unto the Father. And it's just a glorious scene that is there. Listen, that's the one that sits on the throne. And I just want to remind you, even a day like today, in this day and age, when all the crazy stuff that's going on in our world today, know this, there is one who sits on the throne in majesty, and he is moving all things somewhere. You may say, I don't like what he's doing. Hang on, we're learning what he's doing. Then we get to Revelation chapter 5. 
In the Father's right hand is a scroll with seven seals writing on the inside and the outside. And then it's pointed over that and it's like, who can open the scroll? In other words, the scroll has information about what's to, be, what, what's to come down the road. And it's like, someone's got to be able to open this so we know. And no one is worthy to open it. And then one of the presbyteros tells John, John, no, no, no. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he can take the scroll and open it. By the way, the lion of the tribe of Judah the one of power, the conqueror, the one who would come in and take uh, over. Uh, That's so important because then John in chapter five says, look, I see the lamb, the lamb. The lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. Tag that away, friends, because you will see the lamb and the lion, the same one, the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ throughout the entire rest of the book. And at times we've been seeing him roar, and at times we've been seeing him redeem. The lamb redeems, the lion roars. And then we move out of the throne room into chapter six, and oh my, the lion roars, and the first six seals of the scroll are open, and pop, pop, pop with each one, the contents comes alive and comes out and put, is put into effect. And, and then Revelation chapter seven, this parenthetic pause, 144,000, the great multitude, who are they? No, that's not the point here right now, it's know this. That in the roars of the lion, the lamb will be doing a redeeming work. The lamb is always about doing a redeeming work, even in his discipline, even in his judgments. He is always about drawing people unto himself. John needed that encouragement. And then uh, last Sunday, Revelation 8 and 9, the seventh seal is opened, the silence, and it's opened, and the six trumpet judgments, and oh man, is that heavy. And then today, the second parenthetic pause. It's time for John to be encouraged. Let's dive in. Revelation chapter 10. God, I pray as we dive into your word that you would just show yourself glorious as you are. Lord, being a follower and a proclaimer of you can be really hard at times. Being a dad that disciples his children under you can be unto you, can be a hard thing at times, but oh Lord, give us the commissioning, give us the encouragement we need. Show yourself mighty. In the wonderful name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Chapter 10, you there? Here we go, I'm telling you, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna go through chapter 10 and chapter 11, we hook up to the fire hydrant and it flows fast and we're out. Uh, you guys are quiet. You with me? You with me? Okay, here we go. First three words, chapter 10. Then I saw. Stop. Okay, three words that really have a lot of importance uh, to what we're doing here. These three words, it's after the seventh seal is open, after the silence taking place, after the six first six trumpets have been unleashed, it's then I saw. I, I'm pointing to this because, listen friends, as we saw in Revelation chapter one, the book of Revelation, the genre, the type of literature that it is, is it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and it's a letter. It's apocalyptic, massive imagery and that it's laid out for us. It's talking about kind of end stuff that's taking place. It's prophetic. It's not just a fantasy story. It's a truth 
stuff that's going to happen. And not only is it imagery and not only is it truth to what's going to be happening, but it's also a letter. It's meant to be understood. And what's happening is John is told to write it all down. And all of this is happening in a narrative reality. Then I saw, this is important because I need for you to understand, John is not the one sourcing this. John is not the storyteller. John is not the storyteller. John is the writer of the one who's laying out the story. John is not the source. The Lord is the source of this. John is not a storyteller. John is more of a stenographer. He's writing down what the Lord is letting known uh, and letting to be seen happening through this. It's narrative. It has movements. Now, does this mean one goes into the next? In other words, everything's sequential? Or is it, as some say, these recapitulate to where you come and then some come back and retell the story, but in a different framework? I'm laying out the pieces right now, so I'm not going to put it together. Okay? We're laying out the pieces. Then I saw... Uh, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll, a wee little scroll open in his hand. My question is, is actually it a really tiny scroll or is it because his hand is so ginormous the scroll is small? He had a little scroll open, the scroll was opened in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. What's going on here? A mighty angel. Who is this mighty angel? Well, I'm not quite sure, but I do know this. It's not Jesus. Okay, and we'll see why as the text unfolds. I'm convinced this is not Jesus, but this is an actual angel. You never see the word angel in Revelation referring to Jesus. Uh, and some, for some other reasons yet to come. But I'm just going to say it that way. This is an angel. Well, which angel? Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? Is it, it doesn't matter. It's a mighty angel. It's a big dude. And it's an angel who comes down, uh, coming down from heaven. Uh, that gives clearly the idea that John is now on earth. The setting of this is on earth. This big angel comes down, not in heaven. He's, he's on earth. He's wrapped in a cloud, rainbow over his head, a glory and a crown-like glory going on, um, a face like the sun. Uh, boy, that's very similar to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, describing Jesus. That's why some think this is Jesus. But, but let me just say, as we'll see why I clearly think this isn't, but let me say this. Uh, one of the things that the Lord loves to do is have his glory and majesty reflected in his people, in his angels. You know this, follower of Christ? The Lord wants to reflect his majesty and his glory through you. And here is this angel that has components of him. He in himself is not glorious. The only reason that this angel is of any kind of gloriousness is because the Lord, the creator of him, is the glorious one. Very cool. Legs like pillars of fire. Pillars of fire led the Israelites at night in the Old Testament. Little scroll in his hand. What is this little scroll? Various ideas on it. Something that's the same scroll of chapter 5 that the Father had in his hand with the, with the seven seals on it. Uh, others think that it's a portion of that scroll, the beginning part, the ending part 
of it, from here on out part of it. Uh, others think it's like a representative scroll of chapter 5. There's various views on it. I'm just going to say this. I think all that is, is, can be interesting theological hobby talk um, on that, but it's not the question here. What's going on with this scroll that is in the angel's hand here? I think we will see that this scroll in some way represents God's message that he has for John to deliver here. And let's see what goes on. So a voice from heaven then says, uh, I, I haven't read there yet, so let me go. Okay, I'm sorry. Right foot on the sea, left foot on the land. Who cares where his feet are at? Well, apparently John did because three different times John refers to his right foot on the, in the sea and his, his left foot on the land and, and three times, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8. Listen, this is not just like uh, uh, this angel is six foot tall and he's standing on the beach and he's got you know, one foot in the water and one foot on the... This is the, the sense that's going on here is there's this gigantic angel that is like wham on the land and wham on the sea. What's that telling us? This one has authority with land and sea. I'm not saying he's created it. I'm not saying any of that. But what he is about to say, he is bringing to John. And and it's like positioning himself in a symbolic stance to let John know, John, what I have to say covers a lot. It covers land. It covers sea, the whole earth. Verse 3, and the angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when you read that, you think, don't you? Don't you? Okay. That's not what's happening. Look, verse four. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. In other words, John was not, you know, as this is taking place, somehow there's these thunders. Maybe it did go boom. But John wasn't supposed, John wasn't going to be writing down boom, boom, boom. These thunders are giving more data. They, they are speaking more things, like the seals, like the trumpets. And now we have these seven thunders that take place. And, and John, doing what he was called to do, gets out his pen and paper, and he's like, whoa, I'm going to stop. Stop, 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 John. A voice from heaven. Uh, this is the Lord. John, don't write it down. I don't want that known. Why would the Lord do that? I mean, why would the Lord even kind of maybe cat and mouse us? Why, if he's not going to, why even have this happen? I'm just going to throw out a couple thoughts that I think have to do with not so much what's going on in the saying of the thunders, but what's behind the thunders. You know, sometimes in something like this, as the Lord is laying out things of his plans and letting us know, sometimes the Lord just needs to like let us know, hey, by the way, you don't know everything. Remember, I am the Lord. Don't write that down. There are some things I'm just going to keep to me. I don't know, maybe it was because these things were so much more heavy that it was just going to be like, you know what, I'm not, I, I don't want these written down because frankly, they're just too heavy for you to handle in it all. And I don't want to burden you with it. 
I have no idea, but I do know this. The Lord said, I don't want you to know what those are. But here's one of the really interesting things in the whole reading of commentaries, which has consumed my life here recently, is the number of pages that are spent by really, really good people talking about what the thunder said. And I'm kind of like, wasn't the point of the text that the Lord said, I don't want you to know what those are. And yet, we sometimes just have this intrigue to know more. Like, uh, uh, he must be hiding something from us. And if we go there and find it, we'll, 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 we'll get to a better place. I think Adam and Eve would have something to say about that. And what I'm bringing in here is I'm just saying, friends, sometimes in the whole topic of eschatology and the study of what the Lord is doing, be reassured of this. He knows what's going on. Even when you and I don't, he's got it all in control. Even when it doesn't seem like any of it's in control, he's got it. It's covered. It's in good hands. Okay? Sometimes we just need to be good with that place and be good with not knowing besides Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Things revealed do belong to us. Verse five, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the what, angel? So it's the seventh trumpet that is not yet sounded. Uh, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So here the angel standing in a pretty symbolic stance, foot on the sea, foot on the land, uh, makes a, a symbolic oath here. Raises his right hand, just like we would imagine in a courtroom, that was something that was done in the Old Testament uh, over and over again. We see it in Daniel 12, verse 7. And, and note here, his oath, this angel's oath, and this is why I don't think this is Jesus, because this angel's oath is founded on the one who lives forever and ever and who created all things. That's huge. The angel is not the authority, dude. The angel is the messenger from the authority one. And all authority lays in the one who is eternal and who created all things. And by the way, the one who started it all gets to end it all. That, that, that's one of the cool things about being in that position. When you create it all, you get to end it all. And that's what's going to end up happening. So he makes this oath, and it's a, it's a no more delay oath. The text tells us that this oath is, there will be no more delay, that the mystery of God being fulfilled, it will be finished, it will be accomplished in the days of the trumpet call of the seventh angel. By the way, I think we see in the grammar here, it's, it's not the idea of before the seventh trumpet, but the idea of in the days of the seventh trumpet. In other words, the context that, contents that we will yet see in the seventh trumpet, the contents are not the end of things. The contents of the seventh trumpet and what comes out of those contents then lead us into the end of all things in God's plan. By the way, I will say this is interesting. It says the mystery of God, uh, but it's not a total mystery. The Lord has really re, re, told us a lot. Let me say that again because I think we forget sometimes. The Lord has told us a lot. He did not have to tell us anything about what's ahead. 
And yet in his graciousness and his kindness, the Lord has revealed a lot. And yet within it, there is still mysteriousness. And that's an okay thing by me. Verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the... Now, this wasn't like a, now give that to me, okay? I don't think this is like a little bratty idea, but he said that he comes, goes to the angel and he says, uh, give me, I'm sure there's a please in the Greek there somewhere, you know, please uh, give me the little scroll... And he said to me, this angel, this mighty angel said to me, take (laughs) and eat it. (laughs) Take and eat it. John, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the mighty angel and ate it. It was indeed sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, sure enough, my stomach was made bitter, verse 11, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The word eat, the word eat, it's a Hebrew idiom, it's for receiving knowledge, it it carries this idea of digesting by considering. It's this idea of meditating on what's been learned. You don't just hear something and then it's done, but you hear and you take it in and you digest it and you, you meditate on it. It's, it. it's take it in. Don't just know about it, but, but take it in. Uh, so much of this eating idea comes out of Ezekiel 3, verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Your words were found and I ate them. And they became a delight to my heart. The angel tells John here, eat it. (laughs) Notice, it's intriguing uh, the way the angel reveals the information. The first thing he tells John is the latter thing that happens. The first thing he tells John is, John, it's going to make your stomach bitter. Why would he say that first? The whole context of what we're reading. We were right in the middle of the Lord unleashing his judgments. This is the feel and the flow right at the moment of what's taking place here. John, it's going to make your stomach bitter. But John, know this as well. It is going to be sweet in your mouth. The gospel is very sweet. We were talking yesterday, the guys with our forever men, reading a book we're going through and looking at Luke 15 with the prodigal son. And one of the things we were talking about is uh, grace is unfair. If you want to be fair, you don't give grace. Grace is totally unfair. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's given freely. It's made available. Listen, the gospel is really sweet. And yet, in the reality of it is, the gospel has a bitterness in our stomach as well. I mean, the gospel confronts the reality of sin and separation from God. I mean, why do you need the gospel? Because there's a sin problem. And all have fallen short. 
And the gospel is sweet, and yet it is bitter. Alford says, when digested, the same words bring sadness over the news of persecution and apostasies and judgment. It saves, but it's also hard to swallow. Verse 10, John experiences exactly that. Verse 11, John is told to do something, and I think all of chapter 10 comes down to verse 11. In verse 11, John is told to do something. I would term it this way. He is recommissioned. He is told, John, you must prophesy. It's, it's you must proclaim divine revelation, John. Uh, what I've been giving you has been divine revelation. One more thing saying, John is not the storyteller making this up on his own. God is making this up on his own on his own and giving it to John. John is just the stenographer. He is just the writer of it. And the Lord is like, John, uh, you must proclaim this divine revelation. And notice the word, and it's in the Greek, is again. Why again? It carries this idea that you have been doing that. You must again be doing that. Uh, <sighs> Bear with me. This is so sweet. We could sit and debate in nauseam about the little details of chapter 10 and chapter 11. <laughs> who's the little angel? Or who's the big angel? Uh, what's the little scroll? What's the contents? What's going on with the seven thunders? What's the delay thing specifications with? What's the order of the events of the seventh trumpet? Did John actually eat the scroll or was it just figurative? But this is a commission renewal from the Lord. John has been giving really hard information to give. John has been seeing things that aren't a great thrill to go tell your buddies. And it's going to get worse. And by the way, John is a relationship guy. John's the kind of guy who Jesus loved. He's the kind of guy you just want to be around because he's a people person. He's not so much Peter just like spit it out and then later go, whoops, sorry, I just trashed your feelings. John is the guy who gets that. And during the roars of the lion, of the seals and the trumpets, the Lord reminds John, don't give up. It's sweet, it's bitter. Don't give up. Keep at it, John. In fact, it's about to get really bad, John. And I just want to pause and let you know. Don't quit.
Don't quit, you guys. Dads, don't quit. I'm going to really transparent with you here. I've got it down in my notes, so I'm just going to say it. Last Sunday, and when we went through, <sighs> Revelation 6 were the hardest Sundays I've ever had here as a preaching pastor. I wanted to go home and just drive away. I'm kind of a John guy. And you're seeing that. And uh, a Sunday where I talk about conquering powers and war and bloodshed and famine and a quarter of the earth dying and martyrs. Disasters from chapter 6. And then a Sunday talking about hail and fire and death and the sun, moon, and the stars darkening and demon locusts and uh, demon troop woes. I do not like talking about that stuff. It rips me up. And buried in that, I mean, this series has consumed me. And the burden of teaching all that, and honestly, the struggle with the fear of man. People thinking you're just a Bible nutcase, or you're that duped sap that believes in this thing, or you're that uh, like fundamentalist freakazoid. And then in it, literally wrestling with your own inabilities to communicate. What do I say and what don't I say? And just like, oh, I'm just such a knucklehead. I am not saying all of this to be all about me. I'm saying this from this standpoint. You get it too. It is really hard sometimes to proclaim the real full word of God. There are some sweet things to talk about here. Things I love to talk about. And I could, yeah, I know it. I could cry over how awesome they are. But there are things in here that... Who wants to talk about that? And we could reorder the, book of the books of the Bible. We could redefine them. We could retitle them. We could do whatever. But listen, here's the cool thing. The Lord knows, follower of Christ, that it's sweet and bitter for us. And here's what's so neat. At the time that it's needed, for John, he comes and just delivers this gigantic, huge angel of encouragement. John, don't give up. John, keep going, dude. In fact, what's coming, there's heavier information about to come. But keep at it, my friend. Don't give up. 
And has this been really sweet for me this week? I needed that. You need it too. Friends, don't give up. Prophesy again. Chapter 11. Water hose hooked up. Full bore. Really fast. Here we go. And this is a theologian's hobby hut for debate. But too bad. Simple. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then... Uh, by the way, this continues. Then I was giving a measure, measure, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that alone, for it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. What in the blasted world? Okay, uh, quickly. John is told to, quote, measure... What is the naos, uh, the, the Greek term here, the naos, that, that's, the, that's the inner sanctuary. That's where the Jewish people could go in. Th- then in verse 2, he's told to measure the, the area outside of that. Remember when we went through the Gospel of Mark and we knew about that. And you see, this is where the Gentiles could go. And in this, quote, measuring of it, uh, two, two views are on that. They're very close to each other. Uh, one is saying that this measuring, obviously, we don't come up with, how, with foots or m- meters on this. That's not the issue. Uh, it's like going around marking this out, and, and, and one is, is that this is uh, marking out the preservation and protection of the Lord of where it is here and, and not here. Uh, another similar to that, close to that, is the idea of God's favor is going to be poured out here. Maybe not necessarily pure protection, but God's favor and non-favor is poured out here. Uh, he's measuring this outer lot. It's left out. It's going to be given over to the name. Nations, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. By the way, in that day, they saw 30 days in a month. Someone calculate how long that is. Go ahead and grab your phone. You're welcome to do that. Uh, how long is that? Uh, by the way, it's a... Uh, 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 how long? Three and a half years. Uh, I'm sorry, the day's 1260. We'll see here in just a second. That's the day's 30 to a day. It's the same uh, three and a half years. I'm laying things out. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, the preservation, protection, the, the favor, the non-favor in these kind of two groups. This isn't about a, a, a spot. This is about a people. Uh, some say that the people is representing the church is the one who's being protected today. Uh, others say that it's the nation of Israel that's being protected. And I'm not putting a fuselage together today. I'm laying out the pieces, uh, although I think it's the latter. So verse 3 and I, will, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, two witnesses, we've never seen that, and they will prophesy for how long? 1260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth, who cares what they're wearing? <laughs> Actually, John did, and the reason, the point of that is, is they're not wearing party clothes, they're wearing mourning, grieving clothing. Why does that fit? Because the message that they're proclaiming is not the sweet part of things. It's a hard message. 
It's a grieving message that's happening. It's clothed in sackcloth. Verse four, there are, these, uh, there are the two olive trees. I'm sorry, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Oh, so much talk about that. I'm not gonna get into it. You can go to Ezekiel four, take a look at it. I think it's referring to these two witnesses, the olive, uh, in Ezekiel four, the olive uh, oil was used to burn the lamps in the temple. The temple didn't have windows what's going on here. They're providing light. Uh, They're casting light out, verse five. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Dragon dudes. Okay, now, I don't think that this necessarily means fire. Um, Probably judgment coming out. But I I also just want to say this. Listen, if God wanted to make some dudes breathe fire, could God do that? He could. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just laying pieces out. (laughs) I'm such a chicken. (laughs) If anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths, consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. Uh, They have no rain. They may fall during uh, the days of their prophesying. What are they doing? They're prophesying. Boy, that fits with what John was supposed to be doing. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who are these two boys? Um, Daniel Aiken in his sermon on this text lists out 15 different discussed options for this. Um, I'm just laying the pieces out, uh, although I think they were Elijah or Moses. Elijah and Moses like them, maybe them. I'm going to leave it there. I'm not driving a stake in the ground on that. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky. No rain will fall during the days of their prophesying. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast. Boop. First time we see that. Underline it. We're not told anything more about it. We will until a little later. The beast that rises from the abyss, the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies. By the way, they've been prophesying, speaking for three and a half years, and then we all of a sudden come to this time where finally uh, they're able to kill them. Again, God is in full control, life and death. Verse 8, and their dead bodies lie in the street in the great city. I think this is clearly talking about Jerusalem. That symbolically, spiritually, is, oh, I could, on hermeneutics of how to study your Bible, another day. Um, I gotta keep going. It is called Sodom and Egypt, where, where their Lord was crucified, at Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will, 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 will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them uh, be placed in a tomb. By the way, back in that day when this was in the first century, second century, to die and not to be buried in a tomb was the absolute worst thing ever. And yet they just let them out there. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them dead and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Uh, Dwell on the earth, that's already been referred to multiple times. uh, He's going to be a torment to those who don't know Christ and who reject Christ. 
Verse 11, but after the three and a half days of breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. Boom. Is that not like super cool? Would you not be freaking out? And they stood up on their feet and yep, great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Who's the they? I'm not sure. I'm going to guess it's just the two. I don't know. But, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. Look at this. And their enemies watched them. Boy, this is like the ascension after the resurrection of Christ. By the way, this doesn't mean they disappear instantly. There's no like rapture thing going on. This is like an ascension thing. It has to move so they can watch this. Are you not freaking out now if you're seeing that? After three and a half days dead? Verse 13, and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. How interesting. Verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Why chapter 11? Well, one, I think the Lord is communicating more data. But, but I, I want to bring it to this and close it with this. This is more than just more data. John needed to hear this. John in chapter 10 is just told, John, don't stop, don't quit. It's sweet and it's bitter. More bitters coming here, John. Hang in there, my friend. To the death, John, hang in there. Again, prophesy. And then chapter 11, he's given data about what's coming. But if you're John, you're also sitting there and going, oh my word, I'm not alone. There's gonna be others who are coming who are called to be doing the same kind of thing that I'm called to be doing now. I can hang in there. I can continue on. I think chapter 11 to John personally is a total encouragement. Chapter 10 is a recommission. I think chapter 11 is a re-encouragement. And friends, I'd say the same for you and I if you are in Christ. You and I have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel. A gospel that is sweet as it could possibly be and a gospel that at the same time when you take it in and when you really think about it, man, there's a part of it that's bitter. It's sweet in its salvation of our soul. And yet in it all, it's bitter in that it confronts each of us individually about our sin, not only to come to need to come to Christ, but our sin as we are seeking to walk in Christ. It saves us and confronts us. It fires us up and it drops us to our knees. It's a message of salvation, but it also contains within it a reality of separation without Christ. It's a message that some will love to hear. And it's a message that others will hate to hear. And in places in our world, and maybe coming here, hate us enough to want to kill us. It was perfect timing on Friday. 
Some of his guys were up at Moody Church here this last uh, the other Saturday, and Dr. Luther tweeted on Friday, he said, when we are in the hands of wicked men, as believers, we are still in the hands of God. And here's what I want to do. I want to recommission us to that, and I want to re-encourage us to that. Friends, we cannot stop ever, never, never, ever, never, ever, ever being about this. in all its sweetness and in all its stomach ache. Always about this. Take it in. Pour it out. If you don't take it in, you don't have any to pour out. But those who take it in cannot do anything else but pour it out. Lord, we come to you and I I just today... and. Father's Day, uh, I'm just reminded that uh, even if I can, just go to dads here for a second, Lord, and maybe some dads come in this morning and they're just discouraged, maybe discouraged with some of the choices that their child or children are making, maybe just discouraged in their own sense of just uh, struggling to, to be the kind of dad that they want to be. And God, I, I would just pray that this would be a passage that like John, you, you know it. You know that it can be sweet and you know that it can be hard. And you bring encouragement for us to hang in there. God, I would pray today that dads would recommission themselves to be discipling their children to Christ dads and re-encourage them towards that. And Lord, I would pray along with that, that as a church, we would be a people that is recommissioned, re-encouraged. Oh God, may we not give in. May we not succumb to simpleness, to easiness, to comfort, to just the sweetness of the gospel that is so often happening today in churches. God, may may we just embrace the full truth of a saving God A God that can only be big when we understand the big reality of our sin. But God, it's not the big sin that we concentrate on. It's the big God that we key in on. God, we cannot give up. We cannot give in. I pray that increasingly so we would be a take it in people and a pour it out people and doing it with love and grace and patience. And that we would be a taking it in, pouring it out people even to death if that were the case. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.